Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 5 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in and being an encouraging audience over the last few years, and I'm sure you will enjoy this season as well. We'll take some deep musical dives together in the coming months, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these conversations I've been having with some incredible musicians and music producers with you. We have a couple of continuing sponsors that help to bring you each episode this season. The first is Union Tube and Transistor, making incredible guitar effect pedals out of Vancouver, BC. My old pal Chris Young at Union has been laying stuff on me for years, starting with his prototype Buzz Bomb pedal about 15 years ago. Since then, he's become a leading light in boutique pedal manufacturers with an extensive line of pedals like the Moore pedal, the Lab Compressor, and the Sone Bender that are constants in my recording world. Check out their line of pedals at uniontone.com. And the second sponsor for the season is Black Mountain Thumb Picks. I've been using these myself for several months, and I think they're great. Cole McBride, the owner, is trying to make everybody happy and now has medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and regular and extra-tight spring tensions available. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. So even though I've been doing this podcast for about five years, my heart just isn't into hounding companies for advertising dollars. So as always, this show mostly relies on listener support to keep going. And thanks to everyone that has done that in the past. It's a huge help to know that there's people out there willing to kick in to make it all possible. So if you're interested in doing so, there's a few simple ways to help out. First of all, please just tell your music nerd pals about this show. Word of mouth is probably the best way to get the show heard more. If you're in a position to kick in a bit financially, you can make a one-time donation or join in on my Patreon account, which is a monthly donation billed directly to your credit card at any amount of your choice. You'll also get access through Patreon to some private videos and other stuff as I make it available. And the third way that you can help out is to buy a t-shirt or other swag as it comes available. You can have a look at those or make a donation or join the Patreon all at the new website, which is www.makersandshakerspodcast.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get them from. And while you're at it, folks, don't forget to have a listen to our offshoot show called One Life featuring Jim Burns. It's a fun concept podcast involving live improvised music and off-the-cuff storytelling. I think you might dig it. And finally, please follow the show on social media. I have links to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook all on the website as well as a YouTube link. And that YouTube channel actually is going to get a bit more action this year. In the past, I've just put up links to some live performances, but I will be starting a video series this year about music and recording that I think you might dig. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. Links are all at the top of the page at www.makersandshakerspodcast.com and at my personal website, which is stevedawson.ca. So that's about it for the biz side of things. Let's get going. On to this week's show. Hey there, folks. Welcome to the show. This is episode number 118 with my guest today, Rob Baker. Rob is a great guitarist and songwriter and truly an icon of Canadian music, having spent 33 years in probably the most impactful Canadian band of all time, the Tragically Hip. This is the final episode of season five, and I would just like to thank all the listeners who've tuned in over the last bunch of months. It's been a pleasure bringing the show to you as always. I've already started working on season six, so it's coming, 
but we'll be off for a couple months here while we get those shows produced. And I'll be returning the first week of April. And we're looking at a 20 show season six. And thanks again for your support with reviews and subscriptions on Apple Podcasts. And I believe Spotify is now allowing reviews. So all that stuff is easy to do, free, and really helps me out. And of course, a big thanks to our financial supporters through the year, both one-timers and through Patreon. I couldn't do it without you. And even during the off-season weeks here, it's much needed and appreciated as well to bring you these new episodes and help covering the costs to make them all. So, and a big thanks to James Dennis, who pitched in this week. So thank you, and thanks to everybody for your help. Just wanted to keep you up to speed on a few things before we get rolling here that are coming up. First off is I have some new music coming out in 2022, and there's going to be three albums worth of music. If you feel like getting your mitts on any of that, you can pre-order them now at stevedawson.ca. And I'll also be doing a tour in the spring, and those dates are coming together now. They're mostly in Western Canada, but uh, they are elsewhere as well. So um, check on those at stevedawson.ca. Hope to see you out there. Secondly, I just wanted to let you know, if you know of any youngsters out there who write their own songs, we're doing our annual Henhouse Express Junior Contest right now. Basically, they send in a song and we record, mix, and release it for them free of charge. It's open now until the end of January, and all proceeds generated from those released songs will be going to the Sarah McLaughlin School of Music, so it's a great cause too. And thirdly, and lastly, the first ever Henhouse Hang is on and happening September 19th through 22nd of this year, 2022. It's basically a four-day intensive recording experience here in Nashville at my studio, The Henhouse, focused on recording roots and Americana music. And we'll be taking over a wicked little boutique hotel called the Urban Cowboy that's right around the corner. And we'll work in my studio every day with myself and an engineer who I've made tons of records with over the years, Sheldon Zaharko. And we'll be doing a little sightseeing as well around Nashville on a couple of the mornings. And it should be tons of fun. There's currently only six spots left. So hop on it now if you want to come and hang. You can get info on that at my website, stevedawson.ca. And on the front page, there's a link to the Hen House Hang right there. All right, then. On to today's guest, Rob Baker. What can I say about the Tragically Hip? If you know, you know. If you don't, well, you probably should. I don't really need to recap or feel like recapping the unbelievable career of the hip here in this intro, but for my generation growing up in Canada, they left an undeniably massive mark. I don't know how many times I saw them, probably five or six over the years, but it was always an incredible experience. And for me, when I was first starting to play in bands, and their albums fully completely and day for night came out they left a huge impression on me and seeing them live was incredible they always struck me as unwaveringly creative and adventurous and clearly just wanted to make music in their own way ignoring trends and just doubling down on their own unique brand of of rock music for anyone not from canada they may have slipped under your radar, but the heights they achieved here were staggering. Multi-platinum albums, some of the biggest stadium tours in Canadian history. The roadside attraction tours were massive. Uh, the roadside attraction tours were massive events as well, and they helped to promote other bands with those, which was something they always liked to do. When Gord Downey, their singer, was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer, they undertook a final coast-to-coast -coast tour, and the last night of that was televised across the country to millions from their hometown of Kingston, 
and will be remembered forever by the whole country. But at the heart of it all, Rob is just a kid from Kingston that wanted to play some rock and roll with his pals. And man, did he ever pull that off. These guys in the band all knew each other from early grade school. And uh, aside from an early exit by a sax player in the in the hips lineup, the band lineup never changed since 1986. After the end of the hip, Rob took some time off before getting back into his creative space. And he's cooked up his latest project with Craig Northey, known as Stripper's Union. Their newest and third album is called The Undertaking. It came out last year. And it was a really cathartic process for him, getting artistic and getting into the studio again. And it was really interesting to hear about the process of making that record. So you can get info on Stripper's Union as well as all the hips music at thehip.com. And thanks to Craig Northey for hooking me and Rob up. And now please enjoy my conversation with Rob Baker. From my studio to yours, or yeah. vice versa. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, where where are you? Are you in Kingston? I am. So you've just you've always lived in Kingston. Amazing. I have. I swore I have a house five blocks from where I grew up. Really. One block from where I went to public school, kindergarten to grade eight. Holy shit. Two, two blocks from where I went to high school wow. and uh, four blocks from where I went to university. <laughs> Holy I shit. walked that street every day of my life and said, God, I got to get out of this town. <laughs> and I bought uh, a house halfway between the two schools. Did you go to Queens at some point? I did. What did you take there? I took fine arts, painting well, yeah. and print. Painting okay. and printmaking, did a minor in music and uh, minor in music history and a minor in art history. All those years, I thought, well, you know, I got to get out and uh, yeah. I want to live in Toronto, which I did briefly. You know, yeah. I, had, I had two different places in Toronto and in other big cities. Uh, but yeah, this was always, uh, I didn't really, I'm not a big city guy. I thought yeah. for a while I'd live in Utrecht. I took really? my family over there because I wanted to move to Holland. I like and, that uh, town, actually. That's a cool town. It's a really good town. And uh, we were there for a week. I was trying to convince them this was going to be it. Yeah. And it rained. It was just sideways rain for six and a half days out of a week. <laughs> my, my plan just washed away. <laughs> <laughs> now, you guys had some sort of like cool connection in Holland like you did really well in Holland specifically right too yeah I don't know what it was really uh I know they love Canadians there because I've toured over there a bunch and they always just like there was something about like this connection between a Canadian artist and like the whole thing of like liberating Holland from from the Nazis they still like associate that and they still are like we love Canadians they (laughs) do and it seems kind of weird to us but uh it happened there, right? It was on their on their soil, in their homes, in their streets that all yeah. that fighting went down. So, uh, yeah, obviously it's meaningful and it carries on through the generations. And they have a great uh, dislike of America <laughs> in, <laughs> in Holland uh, because do. of the Marshall Plan. And I knew nothing about the Marshall Plan until we started touring in Holland and Belgium. And uh, we got great lessons in history. Now, after the war, mm-hmm. the U.S. rebuilt Germany and Japan. But Holland and Belgium, which were just decimated, were left to their own devices. Oh, okay. You know, the Allies the Allies destroyed the city of Rotterdam. They raised it to the ground, just like Dresden or any number of other places, mm-hmm. because the Germans were using it as a port. 
and uh, yeah, the city's gone. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, had to do it. Got to go. <laughs> <laughs> this is, seems like a really weird place to start, but um, did you guys do a lot of touring over in Europe o- over the years? Like, I know that you're that you know, obviously, like the Canadian thing was a huge focus for you guys and you did a lot of u.s stuff over the years as well but was europe like a a regular thing that you did it was very much so yeah there was a point where we uh uh you know you can only you get to a point as a band where you're playing larger venues and there are only so many big venues you can play in canada yeah so it's like well we can do uh, a three-week tour now and it eight months or nine months, we can do another three-week tour, but even that's kind of pushing it. We spent a ton of time in the States, you know, three hard years of really touring. Yeah. And uh, started to feel like we were beating our heads against the wall a bit. So we just said, ah, let's, uh, let's surround America. <laughs> let's <do everything. laughs> just play everywhere else. Yeah. So we, uh, yeah, we just made the decision to start touring Europe and, uh, as soon as we, you know, we love Belgium, but as soon as we arrived in Holland, it was just like, oh, this is the greatest country on earth. I thought it was, you know, America says it's them and we always say it's us, but I think it might be Holland. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we would set up shop in Amsterdam and make day trips out. You know, with a day trip, you can pretty much play a good chunk of the continent. I remember like touring over there and and they would be like, oh man, there's a, it, the next, the next, gig you are playing is is 300 kilometers you might have to break that up over two days <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. i'm like yeah, yeah i think uh, i can handle that one <laughs> that's the it's the canadian band thing you know yeah. i always make a joke and the guys the guys cuff me upside the head for saying it yet again but as a canadian band you work 10 times as hard to get one tenth as far but you <laughs> that's right. but you do become used to like cramming into a big van and traveling around in eight hour drives, 12 hour drives. You don't yeah. think much of it really. So I, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the new um, strippers union record just to, yeah, to kick things off, which I that old thing. did you do the cover for that? I did. Nice. Yeah. Uh, lockdown, you know, when, when they shut the doors, other doors open, I guess. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I had lots of time on my hands for cool. mixing the record and putting together whatever, <laughs> whatever release plans there were. And then I thought, well, why don't I do an illustration for every song? That's a cool idea. And I didn't know that that was the direction it would go in, but the illustration started turning out uh, to be pretty good. And I just sort of set myself, I'll do uh, one illustration a day, yep. no take backs, no, you know, no crumpling it up and starting over. It's like, take it as far as it'll go. It's like songwriting, man. A little bit. <laughs> so Craig told me a little bit about the process, but it sounds like you sort of came to him with more or less like intact songs that you had ideas for and uh, you'd even done like drum parts. and I, uh, I have lots of time on my hands these days. <laughs> I have my own little, I have a painting studio on the top floor and in the basement here I have my Pro Tools studio and I don't know if you can see over my shoulder. I got, yeah, let's see what's happening back there. You know, I got a rack of my uh, hollow body mm. guitars and my strats are over, my tellies are there. And my strats are over there, acoustic guitars, congas, nice. stand-up bass, my keyboards, amps everywhere. Drum, drum kit from the first two hip albums. Oh, cool. Get that Johnny played and sold to a friend who later sold, sold it, back it to you. me. Yeah, nice. so. I re- recognize that white acoustic guitar from, from some hip 
shows. Yes, yes, many shows. Yeah. Yeah, most of these guitars saw action at some point. I changed guitars a lot. So. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how to tune them, so when it goes out of tune, I just give, <laughs> give it away to someone. <laughs> It's like I live in your basement. <laughs> so what's the writing process been like for you? Like I can imagine that with the hip, I'd like to ask you about that whole process, but as a separate thing, like yeah. when you're writing music for, for a strippers union, it's like a whole different thing. Like you're doing it from the ground up. Um, is that something you've always done or was it kind of like a new thing? Cause, cause you guys have done, I th- this is your third strippers union record. So it was like yeah. 05, 11 and now 10 years later. So there's been a long time in between, but um, yeah. is that like is is songwriting from the ground up for you something you've always done, or was that like a whole new thing in in '05 when you started working with Craig? No, it is something I've always done, uh, but I did find, I mean, from the moment I got my first sort of a Fostex recorder, the challenge is to see how far you can take it, how complete a demo can you make? Right? Can you make your demo into a finished product? That's that's the ultimate. So, uh, and I use the term product just because that's the term I use. <laughs> uh, I don't think of them that way. But uh, yeah, that was always kind of the thing. I guess I was inspired many years ago by, uh, you know, as an adolescent by uh, something, anything, the Todd Rundgren album. Oh, okay, yeah. The idea of, you know, that you can do it all yourself, produce, engineer, write, and play all the instruments. Yeah. So, I've always done that, but I found that when I did it with uh, the hip and I would take a demo in, the more complete the demo was, the less chance there was that anyone was going to pay attention to it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was much more a matter of fleshing out my ideas in my studio and then going in and showing them the idea with an acoustic guitar. But the problem with that is that you show them the idea and you have to strip it back to its most bare bones thing. And when you do that, that ends up being your part. Right. <laughs> Everyone else does the fleshing out. Yeah, yeah. And they get, they get all the fun of, you know, coming up with great bits. So it was, your songs always went in unexpected directions. And sometimes it was uh, more than you could ever dream. And sometimes it was more dream than you could handle. So, <laughs> you know, sometimes it was a nightmare. Sometimes <laughs> it was awesome. So, but with, with Craig, or left to my own devices, I take these ideas as far as I can possibly take them. So I'll spend uh, two weeks working on drums and, you know, getting little fills right, trying to get the sounds and the balance, working on bass lines, because I'm not a bass player, so I have to approach it very methodically. Uh, the keyboard thing, it's ridiculous. I spent, you know, it's like, <laughs> one okay, key at I just time. have to nail this. <laughs> I just have to nail this four bars with one hand and then I'll next I'll get the same four bars with the other hand and then, and piecing it all together. But it works for me and it uh, keeps me busy and out of trouble. So were you coming to Craig like with fully formed, like, did you have lyrics written and everything too, or was he? No, in most cases, uh, I come to him with a finished piece of music yeah knowing that you know maybe we want to switch up double a chorus or cut this section out or whatever it can all be edited it can all be completely rebuilt or redone i think of them as uh, roadmaps to get back to that place okay the truth is once i've done them and i put them away send them in a file to craig or you know put them in a 
Dropbox or something. I forget about them. I forget how I even played them. I don't know. <laughs> I listened to them two weeks later. It's like, hey, I wrote that. That's pretty good. Yeah. I have no recollection of doing it because you're just kind of in a zone when you do it. So, but yeah, it's like I give him these finished pieces of music and he'll get a whole whack of them. Like I'll play him 10 things and he'll say, Ooh, I really like these two. Okay. And uh, we talk about ideas for what they might be about or he said you know, he might say i have an idea for this one or he sometimes draws inspiration from the stupid titles i give them and the titles okay. are really just a way of uh finding Sparking. it again well just a way to find it because honestly i'm doing like uh 50 or 60 of these things a year probably oh wow okay so you're you're prolific in that regard yeah not fast moving but i just uh you got a lot of ideas well, I no, I probably reach uh, probably three ideas that I just keep recycling. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, I spend a lot of time doing it. Uh, and as soon as one is done, there's another one ready to go. Something, and if I don't have something ready to go, I fool around uh, and I'll work up from a small germ. They don't always start okay. as like developed songs with a verse, chorus, bridge. Sometimes it's just a riff. And, it's like, oh, I'll put the riff down. What would be a good drum beat to go with this? And I'll spend some time working that out. Mm -hmm. That usually inspires the next piece. Okay, cool. And then did Pat go in and like redo the drums or were you keeping your drums? Yeah, the original idea for this, I wasn't even sure I was making a Strippers Union record. I just, okay. I ended up with a lot of songs and uh, I thought, I have to take these to the next level. Let's put some lyrics on some let's find the yeah. 10 or 12 ended up being 18 that uh kind of sparked something in craig and uh we sit down and we write lyrics usually we do it together okay uh with him taking him taking the lead in a couple of cases he did them on his own in a couple of cases i sent him something that had a vocal uh some vocals like a background part or something already on it yeah i i think in the back of my mind, I was thinking it was going to be more like a something, anything where I would do everything. Yeah. And Craig at some point suggested, you know, there are a couple of these tunes that would really benefit from Pat and Doug from having a live rhythm section. I said, yeah, you know, I was reluctant a little bit mm -hmm. because of the uh, conceit of doing it on your own. And just that that was kind of something I'd always wanted to do, I guess. But uh, I put my hard drive under my arm, hopped a flight to Vancouver, North Van. This is like, this is all like pre COVID that you guys did this, right? Yeah. I got home less than a week before the first lockdown. Oh, wow. So it was really on the front end, you know, yeah. it was already, it was going, but it wasn't a thing what, yeah. what it became. Uh, yeah. So I went out there thinking, well, there, are, you know, I can see them on four or five, maybe six tunes. Okay. But the others, I'm pretty happy. I put in a lot of time on the bass and drums, and they're sitting in a good place. And got out there, and they did 17 songs in three days. <laughs> Just, they, they're a machine, those two guys. They, it's like they are. two halves of one brain. Pat's got and a little bit of energy, too. Yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Doug is... Uh, Doug's no slouch, either. No, yeah. I, uh, Doug will say the most outrageous thing. 
with an absolutely straight face. And he'll be on the floor laughing, and he's just looking at you straight-faced. <laughs> uh, very funny, funny guys. And he, yeah, absolutely yeah. brilliant musicians. So, totally. Yeah, they just uh, they knocked it out of the park. And then I thought at that point, well, I can sift through all this and decide which ones will use the live drums, which ones will use my drums. And at the end of the day, there was no comparison. I mean, they really did stick pretty close to uh, to your the guides I'd given, I guess. But yeah. they just added <laughs> humanity and feel that it's really hard to do with BFD or Superior Drummer or whatever. Me, me triggering drums off a keyboard. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and then spending yeah, yeah. a week changing velocities. and you know, it's <laughs> Like everything's too on the grid. I got to shift it and humanize it. It's absurd. Yeah, they, they just do it like that a song like um the enforcer that to me like that's like a side of your playing that i've never heard before that's kind of like almost like burt yanch kind of inspired seems to me is that nice reference is that something that's been an inspiration for you like as far as fingerstyle guitar big time okay uh and i love dad gad tuning is that what that's in that sounds dad gadish yeah yeah it is dad gad and uh i've always loved that tuning i keep I always have at least one of these guitars in Dadgad at all times. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I go months without playing anything but Dadgad. So it's funny you say Bert because I thought of that song as being more John Martin. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and I was kind of actually when I did it, I was kind of going for a John Martin vibe, and right. I set the keyboards up to have that Fender Rhodes kind of thing. Like uh, I yep. don't, I don't want to know about evil. Right. You know. And I was really happy with the way it turned out as an instrumental piece. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. Yeah, it would I, totally work as an instrumental, actually. Yeah, I I handed it to Craig. He said, uh, "Oh, I've got an idea for this. It's about a hockey enforcer, a fighter." And I was like, "I don't see this at all. <laughs> this, it's so light and lilting. I don't get it." And he yeah. wrote the. You know, we sat and we talked about it, and we had some laughs writing the lyrics. And I was kind of unconvinced. I don't know. After a couple of lessons, it was like, yeah, this is actually, it's kind of perfect. Like It's super cool. Yeah. So it's the, it's the best thing about collaborations. Sometimes the hardest thing is to let go a little bit of your vision, what you want to do. Totally. Yeah. And after being in the hip for 35 years or whatever it was, uh, you had to, you had to let go a lot. You had learned to let go yeah. really early on. Yeah. Yeah, it's not your vision. It's a collective vision. Right. So part of the whole strippers union thing as well, it's, it's still a collective vision, but it's my vision and Craig's vision. That's cool. It's a cool way to do it where you have like kind of fully realized ideas going in and then he's able to sort of with his sensibility and also like sense of humor and stuff kind of bring that to the table and really change some of the direction. I yeah, absolutely. Really interesting. Yeah, it's exciting. It takes all these songs that I've, you know, all these things that I've put on the shelf or in a Dropbox, and they're just sitting there. And suddenly, he breathes life into them and takes them someplace that you just didn't expect them to go. Yeah, and yeah, it's inspiring. So that that finger style stuff you're doing is that something that you've always done and you just never really had a chance like an outlet for it because when you know there's a fair amount of acoustic hip stuff over the years but it's i don't recall much like as as far as like finger style guitar stuff it's more like strummy kind of stuff so is was this something that you got into more recently or have you always been into that kind of guitar playing 
I've always been into it. Uh, oh, cool. You know, as a, as a kid, 13 year old kid taking up the guitar, 12 year old kid taking up the guitar, I used to spend my summers up in Georgian Bay cottage country. And there was always some guy or some gal who would uh, whip out the guitar on a dock at night and everyone would sit at their feet and be enthralled and just stare <laughs> at them. Oh my God. And they all played fire and rain by James Taylor <laughs> and, uh, and they'd sing and sometimes they were terrible, but it made no difference. People just like were enthralled by them. I thought I yeah. gotta be that guy. I want to be that guy. You want to be that guy on Georgian and, Bay. Yeah. And uh, I was, I could never be that guy still. If I whipped out the guitar on the dock, I'd hold them enthralled for about 20 seconds. <laughs> and then they'd all go off and do something because I'm not that guy. So I compensated by uh, learning how to play other things so I could sit and play with that guy. And that guy's strumming away and I could finger pick or I could play little lead fills around what he was mm -hmm. doing. And the people wouldn't be enthralled by me, but the guy the guitar player would go, hey, you'd be next to him. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the musician would always say, oh, I really like what you're doing. So, yeah, or very early on, I really liked uh, Mississippi John Hurt. Okay. I was into that whole, you know, the alternating bass finger picking yep. stuff and Travis picking. Did you learn a lot of that stuff? Like, did you sit down and actually, like, tear that apart? Was that ever a yeah. thing for you? Yeah, okay. still do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I <laughs> uh, don't want to give up the game too much, but... Uh, I don't want to say I can't read, but uh, instead of sitting down to read books, I'll pick up sheet music and I'll play through the American Songbook or John Hurd arrangements or whatever. I mm -hmm. just or pick up classical guitar arrangements and sit and sit on my porch cool. swing and entertain myself for hours. Yeah, I guess kind of the way people would pick up a the new whatever novel and read. How old were you when you actually started playing? And, and was guitar your first instrument? Uh, the family always had a piano. Both parents loved music. My bro older brother and sister didn't play at all. My sister had a guitar that I would pretend to play. And, <laughs> uh, and I taught myself how to read music and uh, play, but I could never really get the two hands going at one time. I got close yeah. a bit, but uh, and then probably around uh, age... You know, how old was I? 1973, I would have been 11 years old and uh, listening to David Bowie and Alice Cooper and Led Zeppelin and leaping off the furniture with a tennis racket. Were your parents into that stuff or was it just like no. on the radio? That's No, my okay. mother was into Jerry Vale and ballet music. <laughs> okay. And my dad was into uh, Benny Goodman and Glenn Miller. And, oh, that's good stuff. And Dixieland Jazz. Nice. I love, I, to this day, I love that stuff. I yeah. listen to swing music as much as I listen to anything, really, which is right bar, But So, yeah, I was probably around that age, maybe 12, when I got a guitar from someone for 30 bucks and had action about an inch off the neck. Hey, when that's all you know, man, that's like totally playable, right? Yeah. And I started <laughs> learning a few chords. And I think for my 13th birthday, I got a, an acoustic guitar. Yamaha acoustic it's around here somewhere. It's, I've got a high oh. strung now in Nashville tuning. That Christmas, I talked my mom into getting me a guitar amp. Oh, big step. And of course, I got the amp Christmas morning. And I said, fantastic. I'm so excited. The only problem is I don't have an electric guitar. 
<laughs> My old man looked at me knowing full well what I had just done. <laughs> <laughs> that is a uh, good stunt to pull. So he took me out and uh, we got a guitar. It was like a two year, at that point, it was a two year old Strat. And uh, it was brown. It looked like the one Robbie Robertson played. And I didn't know a Strat from a Telly from a Les Paul. Really had no idea. But it looked like Robbie Robertson's guitar, and that was all I needed. So, uh, so that's like early seventies, something like that. Yeah, and, probably uh, seventy-five. I was do you still have 13. that guitar? Yeah, that was my main brown Strat that I played. Oh shit! Okay. Uh, it was the guitar I played everything on through uh, almost every song through the first three records. Amazing. And then uh, after that, it became my open E guitar. And I played it at every gig the hip ever played. Wow. That's <laughs> incredible. Like, what else were you into at that point? Like, were you, it was like all the rock stuff of the day. And, and were you listening to any blues stuff? Like, were you going any further back? Or was it just like whatever was on the radio you were doing? No, no. I, the, the source has always been uh, a driving motivation for me. So, uh-huh. and I always say uh, it's absolutely true that when I found the Rolling Stones, when I discovered the Rolling Stones, <laughs> like Columbus discovering America, when I found the Stones, uh, they were very good about directing people back. So if you, you know, right. if you like our version, check out Muddy's version or check out Helen Wolf, which of course I did because they said to, <laughs> and they weren't wrong. So yeah. yeah, I did that whole deep dive into Chicago blues and uh, and folk blues, country blues. And they led me to uh, reggae music and R&B and soul music. They set me off on quite a journey. uh, There was a whole period in high school where I was a little white Rasta smoking smoking great big fat coin cones, (laughs) sitting in a a sunray reading the Bible and with my guitar at hand. Not much has uh, changed. Yeah, I did. There's a whole bunch of trips I went on for a, for a period of time, in uh-huh. uh, I was into uh, it was almost exclusively uh, Tom Waits, Ricky Lee Jones, and Miles Davis. Nice man. And that was I like a couple of years of my life, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I, I was into crazy stuff. Uh, I loved uh, John McLaughlin, Mavishnu. Uh, yeah, yeah, I loved all that stuff, and that led me to. Uh, Indian music, which I still love. At a certain point, it was like, well, I can't play the John McLaughlin stuff. Right, right. I, not the Chuck Berry stuff seems more approachable than the uh, John McLaughlin stuff. Was there a band that let you dig into like really honing your blues chops as a youngster? No, not really. It was more okay. of a solo pursuit. But uh, you know, I had a band uh, starting in grade nine. Uh, with yeah. Gord, Gord Sinclair and I had a band. Amazing. And, uh, you know, we'd play uh, The Who, The Stones, Led Zeppelin, Rush, did yeah. a killer version of Bastille Day. Nice. Uh, all these <laughs> In the Mood, all those tunes. Uh, uh-huh. And then Punk Hits. And it was, right. you know, uh, I think we learned uh, Sex Pistols album in one day. And we were on our way. And then it was The Clash's first album, uh, Teenage Head's first album. And we were gone. And we started playing high school dances as kind of a punk band. And we'd throw okay. in you know, uh, some Who tunes, Stones tunes, and whatever. But it was, you know, about 50% the 
punk songs right. of the day. Were you just kind of playing around Kingston as as teens? Yeah. Is that right? yeah, high school dances, play yeah. uh, public school gyms, you know that kind of thing. Right. <laughs> awesome. And, that uh, was back in the day when 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 the high schools used to get bands to play at dances. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there was another. I guess I would have been in grade thirteen. They still had grade thirteen back then, and there was a band from grade twelve. And uh, they got a high school dance. We'd already played two high school dances, but there was an up and coming band. We didn't like that much. And uh, <laughs> they had a singer. And we were like, God, their singer is so much better than we can do. This guy's pretty good. It was Gord Downey, of course. He was okay. the singer in the competing band. And the yeah. guitar player was uh, Fintan McConnell, who's from the band The Mahones. I don't know if oh, you know yeah. Mahones. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. 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 They were. Uh, they were the competing band in high school. And then so after, nabbed, after high school, Gord. well, after high school, uh, he got into another band with Fenton and, uh, he said, well, I'll join your band, but you got to get Rob Baker on guitar player. He felt that I was a serious musician that would up the level of the band mm-hmm. agree to be in it. If I was there. So I went in as a mercenary. Okay. I had cash payment every show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very funny and after a couple of years of doing that we were, we got to the point where we were kind of the hot band in eastern Ontario Yeah, and we were playing four or five nights a week but Gordon and I were both trying to go to university at the time and it was getting uh, a little hairy so uh, we quit that band and decided we'd form a band and just have some fun with it just you know play a couple of gigs if we got the opportunity but basically focus on our studies and that band was the hit of course so. wow so that didn't really pan out <laughs> yeah it kind of sabotaged um, our studies that's for sure how quickly though like what was the trajectory of the super early hip stuff like i grew up in vancouver and you're older enough for me where i wasn't aware of what the super early days were like were you touring mostly just around ontario for a couple of years was that the yeah. Okay, yeah, and and, and so. playing like universities and dive bars and stuff like that? Yeah, we would basically, uh, in sort of 84, 85, it was almost exclusively Kingston. Yeah. We might venture as far as Belleville, Brockville, you know, sort of a, an hour in either direction. But As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. And we would play anywhere. We'd play a health club. We'd play a sweet 16 party. <laughs> we would play a Christmas party. 
And then we'd play a biker picnic and then we'd play the university. Sometimes we'd do three gigs in a day. We, wow. we used to do that stuff. So, and the deal, I booked the band at the time and, yeah. uh, I would never say no as long as they met our conditions. And the conditions were everyone in the band walks away with a $50 bill yeah, and we drink for free. Okay. We don't pay for PA. We don't pay for lights. You can cover that. Yeah. yeah. We'll play in the dark if you don't want to pay for lights. doesn't matter. We don't <laughs> care. We need, a, we need a PA system. We each need 50 bucks and we yeah. need some beer. Well, that's fair enough. Yeah. That seems to have worked out rather well. You upped the ante a little bit over the years. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> as far as like the two guitar thing goes, I'm always interested in that. Like we weren't always two guitars. When when we first started out, we had a sax player. Oh yeah, right. So that that's like the, the I noticed that like in looking through the tr- the history of the band, I noticed that yeah, you had a sax player until like '86 or something. Yeah. And then since then, like that was the last lineup change. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That's yeah, crazy. Davis Manning played sax because okay. we thought of ourselves as much more of a R and B band. Okay. You know, so he we, was like the he was like the Bobby Keys of the Tragically Hip. Yeah, we did. You know, it just it sax seemed like a natural thing for us to have okay. in the band. I don't know why. Uh, so, and he played a bit of acoustic guitar. He was really kind of a he was a bit like Jim Croce. Like he would sit down with an acoustic guitar. And he was that guy that would have the whole room enthralled. Everyone would stop what he they're doing, it. gather around, mm-hmm. and he'd tell stories. And you could hear a pin drop. He was yeah. that guy. He was okay. a wild man. But uh, he was a great musician, wrote great songs. And he kind of gave us strange credibility because he was an older guy. He looked a little bit like Charles Manson, but with sort of silver, <laughs> silver dark, wild hair. And yeah. uh, playing the sax with his shades on. <laughs> he was a pretty good guy. And uh, So what, what happened to him? Uh, I think he tried to kill uh, Gord Sinclair one day. Oh. And, and we, uh, that we, was the end of that. we tried to uh, make it as a four-piece for a while, and I didn't enjoy it, being the only guitar player in the band, uh, trying to, anytime I went to play a solo, it felt like the bottom dropped out a little bit. Yeah. Yep. A lot. And... Uh, we had a friend from high school, Paul Langlois. His dad was our gym teacher. Really? And uh, he was a bartender at Red Lobster, and he was going to go off and uh, <laughs> try his hand at being a singer-songwriter in Nashville. Okay. And we said, don't do that. Join the hip. And he said, well, I don't really play guitar well enough. He used to come to all our shows. We'd get so mad at him because there'd be lots of gals there, and he'd be up on the floor dancing. And yeah. da- dancing with all the girls and then he'd catch the first two sets but he'd always leave after the second set with the prettiest <laughs> girl and we were like <laughs> we need to get him in the band so he's yeah. not, not raiding the audience <laughs> so he got him to join the band and he said I'm not that great a guitar player I only know about four chords and he said yeah it's easy any idiot can play the guitar you'll learn and uh, he became a fantastic player very quickly. Were you sort of showing him the ropes in in some regard, or did he just like sit down and like really woodshed, or what was what was uh, that all? Yeah, about? Uh, we never really ever sat down and said, "Okay, I'll play this, and you play this, and we'll weave this way." It's much more an intuitive mm-hmm. understanding, and uh, you can hear if you listen through the years of our records, you can hear the way. His playing changed and developed and became it more really confident did, yeah. and yeah. 
you know, you start playing more intricate lines and I was happy to lay back and give him space, whatever. So, uh, yeah, it wasn't a matter of him. He's an intuitive musician and he figured it out very quickly. I just, we were at a point as a band that we could have, you know, picked a hot shot player from Eastern Ontario. And it, our approach was always, uh, it should be about friends. Friendship comes first. And uh, let's take someone who we get along with, who we can spend six hours in a band with. A lot to be uh, said for that. And, and they can learn how to play the guitar. <laughs> yeah. so the musical the musical thing is secondary. <laughs> the friendship, the, the friendship yeah. fun thing is kind of what being in a band is about. So, yeah, yeah. And were you guys all super tight right from the from the get go? Like that was definitely the the bond was was just like yeah. Gordy Sinclair and I grew up together. He moved in across the street from my parents when uh, he was one and I was three. And I remember the day he moved in. I remember playing in the sandbox in his backyard. Amazing. <laughs> So, yeah, wow. he's almost two years younger than I am, year, year and a half. Yeah. So uh, we were tight, and Gord Downey and Paul Langlois had been best friends through high school. So, so they were it was tight. kind of a natural. And how did John Johnny Fay fit into the thing? Was he a buddy of somebody's we, too? Well, when we formed the band first, we had uh, three rehearsals in my parents' basement, and the guy we had slated to play drums. Uh, was doing engineering at Queens and he missed the first three rehearsals. Didn't show up. That's no good. And uh, so we said, we got to find someone else. This isn't going to work. I think it may have been Gord Downey said, uh, there's a kid, Johnny Fay. He's still in high school, but uh, I hear he's a hotshot drummer. So call him up. Just get him over here. And it sort of gelled right away. There was, it was yeah. obvious that he was the guy. Yeah, he was, he was a, good solid drummer he was much more jazz oriented in the beginning i think oh yeah yeah he'd been doing like summer stuff at berkeley and oh okay uh, he was very adaptable and he was very funny he had a very funny caustic sense of humor that's important and if you've been in a band you know that uh humor i know a lot of funny drummers humor gets you through a lot yeah, yeah man. you know what uh humor and anger work together well and drumming and anger drumming and frustration i think there's something there's there's a bond there yeah funny drummers is a thing though pat stewart is another oh. good example of that yeah it's a wild man <laughs> good pat stewart story <laughs> i was in a hotel in victoria and i was having a lot of trouble sleeping so it was about three o'clock in the morning and i was like god i gotta go to sleep i can't stand it anymore struggling i climbed into bed and i was just starting to drift off and i heard all this laughing in the hallway <laughs> i jumped up i said that's pat stewart i know it is and i swung the door open and sure enough it's pat and they're like uh three or four people and there's a gal with them they just played a gig i don't i don't remember who was with them but yeah four or five people and one of them is a gal and I'm standing in the doorway. I said, Pat Stewart, as I ripped open the door. And he's like, Bobby. And he grabs me and he's swinging me around in the hall. And I'm stark naked. And he's <laughs> swinging me around. <laughs> and I'm fine. And every time I swing past the door, I'm kicking the door open with my foot. Because if the door closes, I'm done. I'm locked out naked. <laughs> so 
I managed How does to that keep, story end? Well, I managed to keep the door open. They all piled into my room. I got dressed. We called rum service. We sat up till dawn. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good cure for uh, not being able to sleep right yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to sleep. I felt like I had to, like I owed it yeah. to someone. Maybe to me. <laughs> Tell me about your early recording experiences. Um, you know, that I, I, I like to kind of focus on on recording on this show a bit. And, you know, obviously through the years, your approach has changed and like both to tone and to approach of parts and stuff like that. Um, but early on, it seems like you were pretty, you were kind of like modeling yourself after the stones in a way with the two guitars and one sort of doing pretty straight up rhythm and one's, you know, basically playing lead. Um, those first records, like there's the EP, I guess, the Tragically Hip that came out in whatever it was, 87, 87 I guess. Um, and then up to here was 89, I guess. Both those records are pretty like meat and potatoes kind of rock and roll guitar. What was the studio experience like for you? Like as a, as a musician, as a guitar player, were you, were you going in and laying stuff down live or what was the process like on those early records? It was laying stuff down live. Absolutely. Yep. We were, yep. we were a live band. That was what we were good at. The studio was yep. new to us. And uh, why go in? and do something that you don't know if you're any good at. Right. Feels like it's a waste of time and effort. Just go in, set up like you're playing a show and do the best you can and let someone record. And when we went in to make Up to Here and Road Apples with Don Smith, uh, you know, he was suggested to us uh, by our A&R guy at the time, Bruce Dickinson. He suggested Don Smith. And we were like, Don who? Don't know anything about him. He said, well, you just finished doing the uh, new Roy Orbison album, which ended up being Roy Orbison's last record. And before that, he did the Keith Richards solo album. Oh, the Expensive Winos one. Yeah. We're like, oh, "Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, we want him to produce. (laughs) That works for us. We're all way into Roy Orbison and Keith Richards, of course. Right. And then we learned more that he'd done all this. uh, He'd done the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers albums. so he he's in Memphis, right? No, he's a he's a California guy. But oh, okay. Between he and Bruce Dickinson, they decided Memphis would be a good place for us to go and record Arden Why? Studios. Uh, well, I think they intuitively understand understood something about us, and it was that again. It's back to this idea of the source. Yeah, that's always been big so for put us. Put these guys in a put these guys in a hot, sticky legit southern studio and see what comes that, out that has a that has a real music history yeah ardent's uh that's got an incredible history we would have known a lot of the music history but there was a ton that we didn't know already mm-hmm. and uh and it was interesting exciting educational on uh, in every respect from the food to the culture to the the studio time was that your first time out of out of canada like as a professional uh, no as a young band long before we recorded we used to come down and play uh, come down we used to go down and play watertown and syracuse which are just across the border for us you know okay watertown's an hour away syracuse is two hours away okay so, you know upstate new york and uh, i've been to new york city many times in washington dc and various places so it wasn't our first time out of, you know, first time to the States, but it, crossing over, crossing the border to go and make up to here, the border guards decided to fuck with us. Uh-oh. And they took us all into separate rooms 
and said, okay, we found a big bag of weed. We found a bag of seeds. We found hash. They tell everyone got a different story. And then they go to each guy. They talk to someone, interview them for a bit, and leave, make them sweat, come back and say, you're just talking to one of the other guys. He says he thinks it's you. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like. That is just beyond I don't have to cross the border anytime soon. But it was downright evil. And yeah. they, they kept us for three hours and we we're sweating blood and bullets. And they told us, you've lost your van. You've lost all your gear. Holy shit. You're not making an album and uh, you're going to jail in the U.S. Unless you cough up what you have, in which case we'll let you walk back to Canada. But your gear and your van are gone. And after Holy three shit. hours, they said, okay, you can go. And they let us go. And we They're just fucking with you. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's terrifying. <laughs> They taught us a lesson that we did not need to be taught. Yeah, no doubt. We did not need that lesson, but uh, they drove it home pretty thoroughly that you don't mess around at the border. Yeah. Take that stuff seriously, and uh, and we always did. But, yeah, I got down to Memphis with Don Smith, and I'm thinking, well, big hotshot producers worked with Dylan and Tom Petty and Keith Richards. I was waiting for someone to tell me where to set my app up, how to dial my sound in, you know, that yep. nothing like, it's really? like, what do we pay this guy for? But <laughs> it's, it became very clear what we, what he got paid for. And he just wanted to capture, he loved our band and he just wanted to capture the way we were. He didn't want to shape it or mm-hmm. he just wanted to make it go down on tape he wanted to capture exactly what you in were doing. In the most pristine way. Wow, that's so cool. That's actually a really great way to ease yourself into your recording career, having somebody yeah. like that. Yeah, so we did the first, you know, up to here in Road Apples were done that way. Both of those in Memphis? Uh, no, Memphis and then New Orleans for Road Apples. And again, that's oh. chasing down the source, right? Yeah, man. So Where, where then, were you working in New Orleans? Were you at like Kingsway or something? Kingsway, yeah. Wow. Okay. We did... Uh, we did two full albums there and parts of two other albums. Yeah. Yeah. Kingsway. We love that place. And Kingsway was the inspiration for us to have our own studio to do that kind of residential studio clubhouse vibe. Right. Which, that all I've, I've worked at, I've worked at your place. It's awesome. Yeah. No, that yeah. came from Kingsway. It's not quite like Kingsway. It's not the <laughs> not 1800s decadence and uh, right. in a 13,000 square foot mansion. It's right. well, It's much more like a wood panel clubhouse. But <laughs> It is a very cool clubhouse, though. I, I yeah. love working there, actually. And then the third album, after Don Smith, we, again, it's kind of chasing down the source, but in a different direction. He went to London, which in a weird way felt like getting closer to the heart of where we were from, early stones, so, yard birds, that kind of vibe. This is for Fully Completely, right? Yeah, which was the big inspiration. And we worked with Chris Sangeritas, who uh, we knew so very little about, except... he's like He was like a metal guy. Yeah, we didn't know that when we went over. <laughs> really? We found that all out, that he was like the godfather of English metal. Yeah. We knew him from producing Concrete Blonde. And we oh. loved Concrete Blonde. We listened to them really? all the time okay. in the van. We were all over that. Their first yeah. couple of albums, still in Hollywood, and God is a Bullet, and some of those tunes, great stuff. We put out a feeler to him to see if he was interested, and he was so enthusiastic. He just completely bowled us over. He said, yes, I want to do the band. 
when are you playing next? And we said, well, we're playing in Toronto in four days. And he said, well, I'll yeah. be there. And he showed up and said, yes, I want to do this band. You could start on this date. He was like way into it. So away we went to London. And his approach was the exact opposite of Don Smith, which was, you have a five-week session. We'll spend three weeks doing nothing but bass and drums. And then you'll have a couple of days to do all the guitars. Wow. And then we'll do all the vocals. In all, so all layered and overdubbed. Nothing was done yeah. live all of a sudden? Nothing live. How was that feeling? Uh, it was very different. It felt very weird. You had no idea what you had until right near the end of the process. Yeah. He got fine playing out of us. Uh, it was our biggest album. Yeah, I mean, that was a super iconic record. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess it worked. It's not the most <laughs> fun way to make a record. Was it grueling? Like, what? that seems like a an exorbitant amount of time to be focused on drums and bass. Like, were you just sitting, twiddling your thumbs, waiting for that to happen, or what was going no, on? No, Paul and I would play uh, almost every take with uh, okay. Gordon Johnny, but we were playing through Little Sans amps. Okay. So it was just like a headphone affair for us. No one's recording what we're playing. And it was just strictly to keep those guys in Yeah, we'd play context. just to keep the arrangement and just yeah. so that when it came time for us to lay down our parts, we'd already played them hundreds and hundreds of times. <laughs> I bet. And then it was yeah. like, so yeah, I'll, I can nail, nail this in one take. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, well, now you have a solo. We'll give you two takes. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> And then we'll take the best one. If it's really, if they're not very good, we'll stitch them together. That was a, a different approach for us. They're both completely valid approaches. And in a weird way, the, uh, the Chris approach was, uh, it was more the standard approach at the time. Right. Going right. into the studio and trying to play live. The truth is you can set up like your live band and be a great live band. When you set up in the studio and there's no audience, it's not live. You're yeah. not going to get that energy. And as a, yeah. we, we found uh, through our recording career that if you invited a couple people into the studio, even like, you know, if there are four people in the room with the players who were there just watching and listening, yeah. you play very differently. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. So did, not, you all, did you bring in, did you have a few people hanging around that would sort of feed that for we you? We did that. Yeah, I did that a number of times. Nice. I, uh, yeah. I always pushed very hard for doing a record of all new material, but recording it as a live album. Oh. Setting up and doing like, uh, doing playing the set every night for two weeks. Yeah. Bring in a small audience every night. You know, it's a great idea. 20 people or something. Yeah. Just run through the set and then take yeah. the best versions after two weeks, take the best versions of each song. That album in my recollection, it was a real shift for you guys, like into kind of more atmospheric stuff and like away from the straight up rock and roll approach that you had on your earlier records. Um, were you guys, was the writing process changing too? Like creatively as a band, were you consciously trying to write in a new way? It also seems like live you were experimenting too. Like some of those songs, it seems to me like you were... Did, like messing with with them way before you recorded them, and they were sort of sneaking their way into either medleys yeah. or 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 into gigs. Um, how was that shifting at that time? Yeah, it's 
hard to say. It's certainly nothing premeditated, mm-hmm. uh, but we weren't big on trying to repeat what we had done. Yeah. So was there pressure on you to repeat what you'd done because you'd had success yeah, with road apples? Yeah. Yeah. So they wanted like another road apples out of you. Yeah, that was. They wanted another New Orleans sinking. Do another one right. like that. Can you <laughs> okay. make it more Southern blues? Can you do you know really? whatever? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had a record exec one time, uh, actually before that record, before up to here, uh, who wanted to sign us. I won't. I won't say his name, but he's been the the death of many bands. Okay. <laughs> uh, and he said, yeah, we want to sign you guys to a contract. We're going to bring in songwriters to write uh, your two oh, hits God. on every record, and then you can write the other nine or ten songs. And we're going to dress you. We see you guys in fringe jackets. Awesome. Yeah. How did that and go? At, at, uh, well, at that point, we really had no prospects for a recording contract it was like this is this is it this is our big break no thank you not gonna yeah. do it but it, it seems like you never really had a problem with having a record deal like you guys got signed to mca and kind of stayed there until you moved to a different label but yeah was that well, ever, we uh, did the the ep was on bmg and then we demoed for capital for a long time capital would give us money to go into the studio Oh, back in re- those days. Record five songs. And we right. when we record five tunes and we come out and they'd say, We really like these two, or we like these three. Forget the other ones. Feed them the feed them to the eels. Uh, and then they'd cough up more money and we'd go in again. Yeah. We like these two. Uh, after we'd done that for a year, Ugh. we had uh, eleven songs that we thought these songs are all really good. Capital likes them. And yeah. MCA came along and said, we'll sign you to a seven record deal. <laughs> and seven M- records. And it was MCA USA, which was wow. important to us. Yeah. And we said, yes, yes, please. We'll do that. That's unheard of, isn't it? For a Canadian band? I don't know. Maybe, maybe at that time, seven record deals are unheard of now. That's you know, when, when they signed us, they said, uh, our A&R guy, brilliant. As I said, Bruce Dickinson, lovely guy. He said, uh, you're not the kind of band that's going to have a huge hit and take off like a rocket. You're the type of band that's going to go out and work, play 200 shows a year for the next five, six years. Yeah, smart uh, dude. After your fourth or fifth album, you're going to have built up a critical mass of fans. And at that point, you're going to spill over into mainstream success. That was his yeah. idea. No one signs bands on that premise anymore. Right, like, well, right. You've got about... Uh, three days to have a hit. <laughs> totally. your, hits, your song's not a hit in three days. We're That's abandoning. A, everyone moves to a new project. Yeah, that whole philosophy went out the window years ago. That's yeah. cool, though, that you that you caught the kind of the tail end of it. Yeah, um, we're very lucky, and we're we're lucky we're lucky too that we never fit into the boxes properly. You know, we right. were too uh, too rocky and too bluesy uh, for a lot of mainstream success at one point. And then everything went uh, to this kind of a uh, roots rock thing, roots rock revival and blues right. revival. And we were way too poppy right. for them. It was perfect that we just kind of, <laughs> by slipping through that crack repeatedly, we were able to carve our own groove, I guess. So, so at what point do you, did you guys start playing like 
big venues in Canada. Like, was that was that Road Apple's days or more like fully completely? Uh, I don't really know. I don't know. Probably probably after fully completely. I mean, we're certainly playing some bigger shows, uh, you know, big outdoor venues on on bills with other bands. uh, Yeah. After Road Apples, but uh, maybe even before then, I don't know. After fully completely, it shifted a bit. And then again, after Day for Night, it really shifted. Then we were kind of doing the arena tours. Were you still kind of focused on touring in the States at that point as well? Oh, yeah, always. Always did that. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah, as I said, you can only play so many, there are only so many cities you can really play in Canada. Yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> you can play more, but it's hard on you. It's a lot of driving, a lot of driving <laughs> for not a lot of money and whatever. It's, yeah. It takes its toll. So from day one, really, we were focused on playing anywhere. We never really had a nationalist bone in our body and never really considered ourselves nationalist. In fact, the whole idea of nationalism sounds a bit like national socialism to me. It sure does. Yeah. Yeah. Not not a fan of that kind of thing. (laughs) Back in the in the studio world for a second, uh, some of the other guys that you've worked with, like Steve Berlin and Bob Rock over the years, I'm just wondering how those, like Bob Rock is like a whole different approach to recording. I know he's very meticulous and like very uh, precise about like edits and like being on the grid. And or I don't know if he was like that with you guys, but I, I'm, I'm aware of that as his general approach. Yeah, Steve he Berlin was, he was like, not a grid guy, okay. but he was, he was very much about uh, cutting drums multiple drum takes and yeah. cutting, cutting drums together to make takes. Okay. And he would mic the drum kit. He would have, I don't hundred mics. Yeah. 30, <laughs> 40 mics on the drum kit. It was Holy just like, shit. It, it got a little crazy. And you know, yeah. we, we did two albums with him. One of them was pretty good. We did two albums with Steve Berlin. Uh, one of them was, was very good. The other one was nah, not so good, but uh, Steve Berlin, is a match. We, we love that guy. Such a great man. And uh, He's a great he, he got a lot out of us. The problem for any producer, <laughs> Steve Berlin said, working with you guys is like uh, working with the UN security council. <laughs> and he's not wrong. Like, <laughs> and the, we are big believers that when you work with someone, you give them the ball, you put your trust in them. Uh, you give them the ball and see what they can do with it. Mm-hmm. And, it was great with Don Smith on the first record. It was great with him on the second one, too, to tell the truth. Uh, with Steve Berlin, we did a lot of second guessing of him on the second record. Why is that? Uh, because I think you know the producer. You know what their tricks are and the way they work. And mm-hmm. they think that they have a read on you. Mm-hmm. And they think they know how to play you and you're playing them. And, and you have, I don't know. You just start to second guess each other a little bit. It definitely happened with Steve Berlin. And I think it, uh, to the detriment of the second album that he worked on with us. Was that Phantom Power? Is that that one? Phantom Power was the first one. The second one was musical work. And uh, it should have been probably a 10 or 11 song record. I think it was like a 13 song record. You need to edit until it hurts. You know, leave good things on the cutting room floor because they don't get wasted. They'll show up one day. His his hands were tied by us. <laughs> really? So I don't blame him in any way. <laughs> uh, the Bob Rock thing, it was, uh, I think, to some degree, 
uh, his hands were, I wouldn't say his hands were tied by us, but uh, on some level he lost the floor with us on the second one. I won't go into too many details about it, but uh, those were not enjoyable records to make for me. Okay. Yeah. Just less organic and less playing and more kind of like nitpicking and that kind of thing or. Yeah. I don't, I don't think uh, Don Smith loved our band and understood the band. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other people come to it with, you know, what's wrong with this band. I know how to make this band big. I know we just need to tweak their formula and do this. And uh, too much of that gets this, you know, totally. So do you guys have like a huge trail of, of um, half finished stuff or, or like, are the the records like a, like a complete picture of what you were working on at the time? Or are there outtakes from every record that, that are takes from every record. Okay. Uh, As a general rule, we try and, uh, if we knew we were going into the studio, uh, we would try and have 17 songs ready to go. Yeah. Uh, you'd usually uh, have jettisoned two by the time you're setting up and ready to roll tape. So you're yeah. down to 15. And then uh, you would try and record 15 and cut it to 11. Yeah. was the general rule. In some cases, as the band as the inmates took greater control of the asylum, <laughs> uh, we started putting 13 songs on records and watering yeah. down the quality of the records, uh-huh. making them, you know, not advisable. As I say, edit till it hurts. And, uh, <laughs> and, and some producers were better than others about maintaining control. Yeah. Generally not. <laughs> I think there must be some really hard to work with. There must be some good stuff, though, that's just, I guess, just sitting there. Like, is there some potential to release some of the outtakes, or, or is that just absolutely. like... Absolutely. No, no, yeah. no, absolutely. I think, uh, I think there are good songs. In some cases, uh, I felt like I was cursed for a while because uh, my favorite songs were getting left off of every record. Uh-huh. Favorite songs from the session. So, so you'd track them, and you'd, you'd love them, and they would just get cut. Yeah. <laughs> my three favorite songs from up to here didn't make up to here. Really? Yeah. My two favorite songs from Road Apples did not make Road Apples. So, so what happened to those? Have they ever seen the light of day or are they just... Uh, they haven't seen the light of day yet. Coming soon. <laughs> Coming soon. <laughs> I, I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about, um, you know, as a musician, somebody that's done, the played in the same band for whatever it was that the hip was active for, 35 years or whatever and had such a visible finishing point, you know, like the last tour was so emotional and, and uh, the whole country was watching basically. And, you know, I wonder how, how for you, like as a musician, you've grown up, like as an adult, you've been in this situation where there's like time to be on the road with your friends. There's time to make records. There's time off in between. You must've sort of got into like a, a bit of a role with that through your life. And then to have that come to an end the way it did must have been like really jarring for you artistically and emotionally. You think? Um, <laughs> Brutal. And being able to see that it was coming too. It wasn't like it was yeah. a surprise. Yeah. Um, what was that but, like for you? And where is that left you know, things for you? It's a funny thing being in a band. It's like you're living out your 16 year old fantasy. Right. Uh, which you really have no idea what you're fantasizing about when you're 16. It, it's so much different the reality, but 
Right. I lived this fantasy all these years and accomplished all these things that you would never imagine in a million years were actually could happen. So I guess that dream had been fulfilled in a lot of ways. You don't ever want it to end. Right. You know, don't wake me up. I'm having the best dream ever. <laughs> but uh, I was at a certain age, mid 50s. I just been through, you know, the demise, the multi-year demise of my parents and their deaths, and then my wife's parents and uh, their deaths, and then one of your best friends and your career. None of them happened entirely out of the blue, except hearing about Gord's illness, I guess. But uh, it doesn't matter how much time you have to prepare. It's still, you know, the, the end effect is still the same. And I watched people of my parents' generation, and I don't want to be sexist about it, but in particular, it seemed to be a thing for men of my father's generation, that they were what they did. My dad was a judge. And when he was retired as a judge, in his mind, he was nothing. You know, he'd been unplugged and pushed against the wall, you know, no longer of use. And I swore I would not be that guy. <laughs> and then I found myself uh, sitting home, twiddling my thumbs. And it's like, uh, it's eight o'clock at night. I should be pouring my drink now to get ready for the stage. But <laughs> there's no stage coming. There's no audience. Mm -hmm. There's no tour. And uh, my whole identity, it turns out, was very wrapped up in being a musician, being a guitar player, being a member of a band. Yeah, And uh, it really threw me for a loop. I thought I was ready for it. I was ready to be off the road. In my mind, I was. Mm -hmm. But uh, I didn't really know what it entailed. I, I didn't, hadn't seen the whole thing. And uh, yeah, it messed me up in a big way. And uh, I thought about, you know, I had self-destructive urges for maybe I just blow my whole life up and do something completely different, change my name, move halfway around the world, whatever. Like, and you have all these nattering voices in your head telling you, you know, what are you going to do now? What's, what's the next act? Right. So my way of coping with it is avoidance, <laughs> which I'm a master at. <laughs> so I would come down to my studio and I just chase down an idea. And when I'm doing that, uh, the act of creation, uh, playing the guitar or painting, it's the same thing as running or doing yoga or meditating. It's driving all those other voices away. You're not doing shopping lists in your head. You're not planning things or thinking about conversations. You're in the act of doing something and everything else falls away. So that's, I avoided the problems or issues in my life by focusing on this creation of these songs. And at a certain point, there were a lot of songs. So I said, I should fire some of these to Craig, see what he thinks. Yeah, it, it's good to have friends at a time like that. Yeah. Through the act of avoiding, I realized uh, this is who I am. This is what I do. There doesn't have to be another act. I'm, I'm a guitar player, I'm a musician. Uh, maybe it's not the same band, that it was, things change. I'm still the same person with the same drives and it's the same things that uh, get me off 
and interest me, I'll just keep doing that. Maybe, uh, maybe my days of uh, having it be an economic force in my life are over. Mm-hmm. Maybe the money flows out instead of in now. <laughs> right, right. Doesn't much matter. I'm still going to do it. So yeah. Um, pandemic aside, do you see yourself going out and touring a bunch and and like doing the road thing and kind of like reinventing would, yourself in that way or not really? It'd have to make sense for me yeah. to do it. I uh, I got to a point after. You know, it was after about 25 years on the road where I was one of those people that could sleep anywhere at any time. I had no trouble functioning on two hours sleep. You know, I loved the tour bus. It was home for me and travel. And I got to a point where I need to sleep in my own bed. I can't sleep on the bus. I can't sit on a bus for eight hours. I hate airports. I (laughs) I feel you. I just, I ran out of tolerance for it. So to go on the road, uh, does not sound appealing to me. Yeah. But playing shows, getting up on Select stage shows. with uh, friends, people yeah. that are like uh, my brothers and sisters, uh, you know, Emily and Craig, Pat, Doug, Gord Sinclair. These people are, and my son who I play with on a regular basis. Just being on stage with these people is a privilege to be able to play music with your friends. It's yeah. like, That'll never change. We should be paying for the privilege of that, uh, not charging money for it. We charge money because you have to get get there. Go through an airport and <laughs> stay in a hotel. Yeah. Right now, I feel like there isn't enough oh, money to get me up on stage to do that. So. <laughs> um, and the studio, the bathhouse, um, is that something that you guys intend to keep? Like, I don't, I don't know what the deal is with that place, but you all it's a going concern. A... Uh, there, okay. it's it's busy. It's yeah, you know. Uh, lockdowns right now kingston is under a five person lockdown indoors and outdoors which uh definitely is problematic at a studio of course yeah but you record smaller acts (laughs) but it's an ongoing concern i'm in there with uh, restrictions willing i'll be in there in may with a band called the wilderness producing them or something producing record for them yeah i produced their last record okay going back in and uh, and songwriting with my son, you know, keep busy. There's lots of stuff to keep busy with. The bathhouse studio is, as I said, a going concern there. Uh, if I want to get in there, it's a matter of trying to book like six weeks out, trying to find a day or a weekend to get in. But So you guys own it all together and you share the, you share the, the, the cost. As well. <laughs> the cost. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, it does. Is, not, is Niles still there? Niles is still there, and wow, it does. Cool. It does well enough for us to uh, keep Niles on salary and keep the yep. studio up and running and updated oh, with good. the gear that we need and keep the roof plugged. I loved working there. I'd love to get back there one of these days. It's not I mean, a get it's rich. A it's not a get rich quick scheme. No, especially these days. <laughs> no, I can understand that. Uh, well, thanks, Rob, so much for spending some time with me today. I, yeah, I really appreciate it and uh, love hearing about some of those experiences of yours. And I'm sure other people will like to hear it too. Good talking to you, Steve. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was my conversation with Rob Baker. I hope you enjoyed it. I had a blast bringing it to you. I also had a blast bringing you all of season five, which has now come to an end. And thanks again for listening. Please stay tuned. Check out some old episodes, and we'll be back in a few weeks with Season 6. Until then, take care of yourselves. We'll see you then. Over and out.
Thanks for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. Don't forget to follow us on social media and please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. And you can find us online at makersandshakerspodcast.com. As always, thanks to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for help with research. And we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Thank you.